you'll notice more finely, if you will, that there is another line and a half devoted to Jacob than there is to that man in between. Calvin Coolidge is the 30th president of the United States. And he was known for a couple of things. One of the things that he was known for was that he was considered very introverted. And another thing he was widely known for was being the most boring president that we ever had. I guess if you rank them, somebody's got to fall into that category. They called him Silent Cal because he was thought to be or known to be a man of few words. In fact, his wife Gracie loved to tell the story about the time that a woman approached him, came up to him and she said, I made a bet today that I can get you to say more than two words. To which Cal said, you lose. He slept 11 hours a day, even as president. Eight hours at night and a nap anywhere from two to three hours. His first act of office in 1923 when his predecessor Warren G. Harding died in office was to be sworn in in the morning at 3 a.m. The first act of office was to go back to sleep. In fact, when he died many years later, the comedian Dorothy Parker was told, Calvin Coolidge has died, and she said, how can you tell? (laughs) You know, I think few of us want to be remembered as a boring person. And yet when we think about the man of whom we are speaking this morning, Isaac would be considered by a great many people to be an ordinary, some would even say a boring person character of Scripture. In fact, you might look at him as the ordinary son of a famous father. You could equally look at him as the ordinary father of a famous son. When you examine the life of Isaac, you see a man who spans a great deal of time. In fact, he shares 75 years of chronology with Abraham. His life overlaps 120 years with Jacob, his son. And if I were to ask you, what do you know about Abraham? Probably multiple answers would come to your mind. You would think about the one who had the nephew Lot. You would think about the land promise and the seed promise. You would think about Abraham's bargaining with God. You would even think about Abraham, the old man, given a child whom God tells him to sacrifice. That child, by the way, is Isaac. And if I were to ask you, what do you know about Jacob? A great many things would come into your mind from literally the moment of his birth as he's grasping his brother Esau's heel. You would think about Jacob and Esau. You would think about Jacob and Laban and the deceiver that Jacob was, deceiving his father, Isaac. You would think about Jacob and his dream, Jacob and the angels, Jacob and wrestling with Uh, what many believe to be the angel of the Lord, Jesus, before he came in the flesh. You would think about Jacob and his twin brother and his children. How about the one for whom he made the coat of many colors? But if I were to ask you, what do you know about Isaac? Most would say very little. In fact, when we begin to think about the life of Isaac, even though he lives longer than Abraham his father, longer than Jacob his son, Joseph his grandson, his life is condensed pretty much in just a little over a chapter of the Bible. 
And yet in Matthew 22 and verse 32, when Jesus is quoting his words to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, he identifies himself as much as the God of Isaac as he does the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob. I wonder what can we learn from the Calvin Coolidge of his day. I believe we can learn some important truths if we'll look just a little bit deeper. As we look into the life of Isaac, the first thing we see is Isaac the seed. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul looks back at him and he identifies him as the seed. But Paul is doing something very important in that passage. He is making a spiritual comparison. He is telling us that we are the spiritual equivalents of Isaac. That we are the seed of Abraham and we are heirs according to the promise. You may remember in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, For we are all the sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of us as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. But you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are heirs according to the promise of seed, uh, the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. He tells us we are as Isaac was by faith and baptism. When we see Isaac the seed, we come to appreciate how important it was that Isaac was born. Do you realize that if Isaac was not born, then there would be no nation of Israel? And if there was no nation of Israel, then there would have been no Messiah born. So we're identified ourselves with Isaac as the seed and the descendant of Abraham in our faith in God. But when we come to see the seed of Isaac, Isaac had no control over whether or not he was born. But his birth was essential for him to play his part in God's eternal plan. If you're a Christian today, no matter how long it took you to become a Christian, no matter where you came from in order to come into Christ, when you came into Christ, God said to you in essence through His Word that I have a place for you in my plan and I want you to play your part as my heir and as my descendant through my son. Isn't it a thrilling thought that no matter who you are, you have a part in God's plan? You know, the Bible makes this abundantly clear that the body of Christ has not one member, but many members. And the the foot cannot say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not a part of the body, that doesn't make it any less a part of the body, does it? And if the ear says, I'm not the eye, and because of this I'm not a part of the body, it's not any less a part of the body, is it? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But instead, God has placed every member, each one of us, in the body just as He desired. And may I suggest to you this morning that even if your part is not as visible, even if the role that you play is not as public, that you have a part in God's plan. You are part of the purpose of God just as Isaac was. And so as we begin to examine at the very beginning, and we see this analogy that Paul makes... We look at and see Isaac, the seed. But second, we look at Isaac and we see Isaac, the son. When we begin to examine Jesus and Isaac, it's incredible to notice the many similarities that exist between the two. When we begin to look at Isaac and Christ, we see that both of them were the only begotten sons of their father. Both called this in Scripture. 
we see that both of them had a birth that was announced beforehand. Both of them were named before their birth. Both of them were the object of the love of their father. Both of them had a three-day experience. Both of them were accompanied by two men. Both of them submitted to their father's will. And I submit to you that there are several other comparisons that can be made between Christ and Isaac. It seems clear that God wants us, when we look at the Mount Moriah, to see the cross. And when we look at Isaac, he wants us to see Christ. When the Bible reveals to us Isaac, the son, it draws a compelling comparison to the Christ. But have you ever thought about Isaac, the son? As he is revealed to us in the Bible, we begin to read about him and this relationship, at least his active part as a conscious and aware adult that is given us dialogue in Scripture in Genesis chapter 24. We see that Isaac was a young man. He was a son who loved his mother. Remember when God is bringing through his providence Rebekah back to be his wife? That you have Isaac waiting and as she comes his way, he is mourning the loss of his mother Sarah. And you can see how truly he loved his mom. Then we also see how he interacts with his father. That relationship is depicted in a little bit different way. It was one of subjection and obedience. We thought about Isaac the son and his respect for his father and his father's will. When we read that when Isaac is taken to the place that God had told his father Abraham to sacrifice him, that as he lays out the altar and he builds it and he puts the wood in order, he binds Isaac his son and he places him on the altar upon the wood and he stretches out his hand to slay his son, that Isaac submits to that. It's not only in that moment, but do you remember in Genesis chapter 24, he does not seem to be resentful of his father's assistance in finding him a wife. I'm not making a suggestion that that should become something that we practice, but you notice that in his circumstances, that was his lot. And he accepted that. And I want to contrast that with a spirit that lives in our culture, a spirit that does not love to submit to authority. That so often we are told today that we are to be our own person and to do our own thing and that no one, no relationship should get in between us and what we want. What a contrast with what the Bible calls on us as followers of Jesus in all of our relationships to do. What does God tell children to do as they're growing up in their parents' homes? Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you, that you might live long upon the earth. Sometimes we forget that the relationships that we have with others in this life are tied to the relationship that we have with our God. And the respect that we show to our parents is tied to the relationship that we have with the Father of all. And so you go through Scripture and you see in Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 1, the Bible says that a wise son makes his father glad, but a foolish son brings grief to his mother. Proverbs 15 and verse 20 says almost the same thing, except that it says that he despises his mother. In Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 20, it says that the son who curses his father and mother in times of darkness, his light shall go out. God urges us in the relationships in which we find ourselves to swim against the tide of culture and to show an honor and a respect for our parents. So when we look at Isaac the son more closely, we see these particular traits in him. But then I want you to notice that 
perhaps the greatest love story in all of Scripture, is the story of Isaac and Rebekah. It is one of the most unsung stories of the Bible. But I want you to look closer at Isaac the husband. What impresses me seems to be that both Isaac and Rebekah do so much right. Their marriage and relationship begins to be told to us in Genesis chapter 24. And as we look at both of them, we see how much right they do. In Genesis 24 and verse 16, the Bible tells us that Rebecca's beautiful. And I don't know how much control she had over that. That was something certainly genetic. But verse 16 says that, but it also says that she's pure. So that she had all control over. Rebecca is a beautiful woman on the inside and on the outside. She was also a hard worker. Genesis 24, verse 16 through 20. She had a wonderful attitude. Genesis 24 and verse 58. And she had a great relationship with her family and his. You know, it seems that very often when I'm doing premarital counseling and I talk about one of the problem areas of marriage, I come to the area or the the matter of in-laws. And when I'm discussing about the beautiful possibility that exists between a person and their in-laws, so often I'm met with scorn. The very idea that I could have that kind of affection for my in-laws. And yet here we see Isaac and Rebekah who reflect that. We look at Isaac for his part and he was a man of family and faith. Genesis 25 and verse 21. He was one who loved family, be it his parents or his spouse and his children. And so as we look at them, we learn some great lessons from Isaac the husband. It seems that the Holy Spirit is putting on a clinic for us using Isaac and Rebekah as the object lessons. Think with me for just a moment of a few lessons we learn about marriage from Isaac. The first lesson is that you live out, as married couples, you live out life before the living one who sees. When Isaac and Rebecca Rebecca come together, they come uh, together at a place called Beer Lahai Roy. And that uh, word is Hebrew for the living God who sees. It goes back to Genesis chapter 16 when uh, Abraham and Sarah have the conflict with Hagar and she's sent away with Ishmael. And Ishmael is left in a bush to die and God provides for her and makes promises to her. And in Genesis 16 and verse 14, she calls God El Roy, the living God who sees. I suggest to you this morning, if you are married, you live out every day before the living one who sees. God sees what's going on in your marriage and what's going on in your relationship. God sees your ups and downs. He sees your victories and He notices your defeats. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 3 says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. That's not just meant to be thought of as a warning against sin, but as a promise to us. As we do God, that God knows what's going on wherever we are. We live out our marriage before the living one who sees. We also see from this great marriage love story that God wants to hear us praying for our spouse. You know, when they're married and some period of time has passed, there's a crisis that arises in their marriage. And Rebecca is distraught and Isaac goes to God on her behalf. 
In Genesis chapter 25 and verse 21, she's barren and cannot conceive. And so Isaac goes to God in prayer and the Lord hears him. Of all the great things that Isaac does in his life, I want you to notice that he never does anything greater than praying for his wife. God wants to hear us praying for our spouse. Do you pray for your spouse on those good days when everything is warm and fuzzy in your relationship? More to the point, when there's conflict and tension between you, do you go to God in prayer for your spouse? God does not want the prayer life of husbands and wives to be in any way interrupted. In fact, some of his instruction in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 speaks to this very thing. You husbands also live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and give honor to her as a fellow heir of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. And I find it interesting that this is spoken of in the plural. God wants the prayers of husbands and wives to flow up to His throne. And how beautiful it is when God looks down and sees husbands and wives who are caring about each other so much that they're praying for one another. A third lesson that they teach us in this marriage clinic is that we need to keep the lines of communication open. As it is with all of our Bible characters, God does not hide their flaws. And we'll speak more about this in a moment, but here is Isaac who preferred uh, Esau, and you have Rebekah who prefers Jacob, and it creates a big mess. And Jacob has deceived his brother. And Esau has gotten very angry. And he holds a grudge against Jacob. And there's this huge problem that emerges. But you know what happens when the problem occurs? Rebekah and and Isaac get together. And they begin to talk about this. And they resolve the problem between them. You know, we need to keep the lines of communication open at all times. We need to focus on the importance of knowing what's in the heart and the lives of one another. But when difficulties come, especially then, we need to make sure that we get together and we turn to one another and not on one another. It's important to communicate when difficulties come. But we also look at this couple and we see an example of those who provide love and comfort from one another. Isaac and Rebecca teach us that we need to turn to each other for comfort. The relationship begins in Genesis 24 and verse 67. Again, Sarah has died. Isaac is mourning her. Rebekah comes and he comforts her. Never miss an opportunity to express love for one another. I believe it was about this time last year, I guess a a week later, that Hiram and I split a sermon and we talked about love and and as Valentine's Day was approaching and that day's coming again and of course we'll spend the money on roses and candy. It's a great opportunity for us to say to our spouse, I love you and I care about you. God wants us to never miss an opportunity. If we want to spice up our marriages, perhaps it would do us good as husbands and wives to sit down and read the Song of Solomon together. And notice how they speak to one another in that book. In Song of Solomon chapter 4 and verse 10, as he speaks to her, his sister, his bride, he says, Your love is better to me than wine. How about in Song of Solomon chapter 7 and verse 6 when he says, I love you for all of your charms. Don't assume that your spouse knows how much you love and care for him or her. Audibilize it. When we look at this husband and wife, 
We see a, an affection and a devotion. It's a remarkable thing to me that Isaac lived at a time in which God permitted a man to have more than one wife. And his father Abraham did. And his sons Jacob and Esau did. But Isaac was a one-woman man. As we are looking for examples of how to treat our spouse, we benefit by going to Isaac, the husband. Oh, but then we read about Isaac, the father. And we need to preface this up front by saying what we've already said a moment ago, that Isaac was not a perfect father. We read in Genesis chapter 26, and we see that he played favorites. That Jacob loved Esau because he had a taste for game, and Rebekah loved Jacob. And he made some big mistakes as the result of his favoritism. And he helped to make a bad situation worse. But I want you to notice how we learn from Isaac the father. We learn from Isaac the father of the importance of having a great father. When God speaks to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, he says that just as he met with him that night, he says, as I was with your father... Abraham, so I will be with you. And I will bless you. And I will multiply your descendants for the sake of your servant, Abraham. And so here is this opportunity that Isaac has to be the kind of father that will carry on the promise of God. But I want you to notice what he said to his father in Genesis 18 and verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may guide his children and his household after him to keep the ways of the Lord. We see the importance Dads of being the right kind of father so that our children can turn around and be that kind of parent themselves. As we look at him as the example for us, we see the importance of being a present and an active father. But then we also look and we see Isaac the neighbor. You ever had a neighbor that didn't seem to like you no matter what it was that you tried to do? When we lived in Littleton, Colorado, we had a neighbor like that. And that neighbor seemed to have problems with several things that we did with our house and with our fence and with our yard. Even stuck little notes in our mailbox to talk about things that they wished that we did better. You ever had a neighbor like that? I don't think anybody's ever had a neighbor like Isaac had. In fact, he had a bunch of neighbors like that. When I think about Isaac the neighbor, there was the time that the Philistines grew envious of him and they stopped up the wells and they asked him to leave. You ever been through anything like that? And then he goes on and he's around his neighbors of Gerar and they redig a well. And as a result of that, the neighbors come along and they complain and they contest the water. And so he goes and he digs another well and they complain again. He finally gets far enough away and the quarrel is over and he wins over his neighbors. I suggest to you that Isaac practiced the Sermon on the Mount centuries before Jesus preached it. He says, you have heard it said, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, don't resist an evil person. But whoever strikes you on your right cheek, turn to him also the other. And if he sues you and takes away your shirt, give him your coat also. And if he compels you to go a mile, go with him too. You have heard that it has been said of old, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. And pray for those that persecute you, that you might be sons of your Father which is in heaven, because he causes his son to rise on the uh, evil and the just, and he sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you greet those who greet you, 
What reward do you have? Do not the Gentiles do the same? And if you love those that love you, what reward do you have? Do the tax collectors not do the same? Be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 38-48. He lives out. Centuries before, Paul speaks to the church at Rome and encourages them to be peaceable, to provide things honest in the sight of all men. And as, as far as it lies within you, be at peace with all men. Do not avenge yourselves, dearly beloved, but give place to wrath. As it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, give him food. If he thirsts, give him drink. In so doing, you shall heap coals of fire upon his head. Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now let me make two quick applications there. If you want to be an example for Christ, be an example to your neighbor. Be honest, be deferential, do all that you can to keep peace. If there's no peace in the relationship, be it not because of you, but because of their resisting every overture and never stop doing that. A more immediate application. The Bible often refers to those who are within the body of Christ as neighbors. Let us make sure that we are always the right kind of neighbors to one another. As we think about the exciting things that are to come, and as God is blessing us with so many who become a part of the body of Christ, we've got to discipline ourselves to continue to be that kind of neighbor, the Isaac kind of neighbor, the one who's willing to be run over rather than to run over, the one who is willing and desirous of living at peace as much as lies within us. Never to the compromise of truth, but doing all that we can to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4, 1-3. through Isaac the neighbor. Then there's also Isaac the worshiper. You know, in Genesis chapter 26 and verse 34, we see what happens when Isaac comes to a new place. Isaac comes to the place where he is, and he builds an altar, and there he calls upon the name of the Lord, and then he pitches a tent there, and his servants dig a well. Did you notice the order of things? He comes to a new place to live. He works out, he sorts out the details about his worship first, and then his housing, and then his necessary needs. That sounds like Noah, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20 comes off of the ark, and after the flood has subsided and he's about to be fruitful and replenish the earth, what does he do first? He builds an altar and he calls upon the name of the Lord. Hey, it sounds like his father Abraham, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7, Abraham comes to Shechem and the first thing he does is he builds an altar and he calls upon the name of the Lord. In the very next verse, he goes up on the mountain and between Bethel and Ai, he builds an altar and there he calls upon the name of the Lord. He comes back to that same spot years later, Genesis 13 and verse 4, and he does the exact same thing. It was a priority with Isaac. Even before he had the financial and the physical details of his life worked out, he made sure that the spiritual was done first. Matthew 6 and verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God. Well, when it comes to a job transfer and an opportunity, there may come with it a huge raise and a great opportunity within our profession, but what is the state of the church there? And if it's weak... Am I going there to try to be a missionary to help that church to grow or am I more concerned about the physical than the spiritual? Isaac the worshiper put those things first. 
When I think about Isaac the worshiper, I see how he in his public display shows an attitude of worship that I want to imitate. A dedication. You see sometimes a stark contrast with the attitude toward worship taken to that which we can fall in today. How about when it's challenging to go to worship? Was it challenging for Abraham in Genesis chapter 22? When God had just said to him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice? Genesis 22 and verse 3 says that Abraham rose up early the next morning and he saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and he split the wood for the offering and took Isaac his son and went to the place of which God told him. Point being, that he was going to worship and that was the attitude that he had. Or what about the Ethiopian who's coming back from worship at the temple and he is so fired up about the worship that he's just done, he can't get enough. And so he's reading the book of Isaiah on his trip back home, Acts chapter 8 and verse 28. I look at Isaac and I see that he had an attitude of worship that he had seen in his father and I am reminded that I'm setting a tone or an attitude for worship and the attitude toward it for my family. And if I see an attitude in my children and the way they approach worship, and it's not what it should be, maybe one of the things I can do is look at my own attitude in worship and the way that I speak about God's people and worship when I'm not there. So therefore, I'm going to be very cautious about talking about the quality of the song leader, of the prayer givers, of those who lead us in the Lord's Supper, and about all that is done in the worship. Because when my children remember the conversations that I had with my spouse in their hearing or to them, I want them to always feel like I had the highest of regard for the worship of the Lord. No, not perfect. We can't be perfect. We're not perfect. But the people who come together to worship God in spirit and truth. I learned from Isaac, the worshiper. You know, you realize that the church is made strong by the Isaacs that are in them. They chair no boards, they rule no kingdoms, they write no books, they just serve as sons and daughters, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers and neighbors and worshipers. They do their job at home and in the church and in the community. They help meet the budget. They help build up the Bible school. They help the church to meet their goals. They serve on work days and often without proper recognition. There's a glory in the ordinary. When I think about some of the ordinary folks in Scripture, I think about Andrew. If there was no Andrew, there would have been no Peter. And if there was no Peter, who would have preached to the Jews and then to the Gentiles? If there was no Kevin Tortorella, there might not have been a Cy Stafford. And if there wasn't a Cy Stafford, I wonder if 500 congregations would have been established in East Africa. Kevin called himself an ordinary member of the church. If there was no Craig and Wanda Nelson... There would have been no invitation extended to a young man named Hiram Kemp to come to the Lord's church. And what would have been the result if that hadn't occurred? Let's fly under the radar of the world knowing that God carefully takes notice of our lives. 
Did Isaac really understand the part that he was going to play in the plan of God? It was going to be 2,000 years before the Savior was going to come through his descendants. But when he heard the part God wanted him to play, he played it to the best of his abilities. What about you and me? In the various places where we live out life, in the glory of the ordinary, let's long to be Isaacs doing our very best to fulfill God's will in our lives because we mean that much to him. Isaac the seed, who goes on to be the one we're still talking about so many years later. This morning, wherever you're coming from, however long you've been deliberating, God has a place for you in his kingdom. He wants you to play a part. That begins by your being in the body of his son. And scripture tells us how to do that in responding to his great grace. If you'll believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you're willing to turn away from sins and make Jesus your Lord and Master through repentance, if you'll confess the sweet name of Christ as the Son of God before others, if you'll be baptized to have your sins washed away, in that act, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you're baptized into His body, you become an heir and a descendant. You become the seed of Christ, Galatians 3, 26-29. You become His child. You become forgiven of sins, a member of his church. If you're ready to do that, we're ready to help you to do it. If you're a child of God who has struggled to find your way and your purpose, if in that you've turned away from him and you need to come back to him, we're going to sing a song to encourage you. If you need to respond publicly, we'll throw our arms around you. We'll pray to God for you. If you need to respond, why not now as we stand and sing?